Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the District Podcast, Outside the District Edition, where we cover topics important to folks living outside of the big cities. I'm Teresa Mall, Assistant Editor at Spectator World. Today, our special guest is Mr. J.D. Wilkes. J.D. is a lead singer of the legendary Shack Shakers. He's also a super talented writer, artist, all-around creative genius. But perhaps most intriguing of all (laughs) is that, J.D., you are a Kentucky colonel, but not in the sense that you are a military officer. So that's something I've always found particularly intriguing about you. So why don't we start there and tell our listeners what it means to be a, to be Colonel JD. Right. So uh, the Kentucky colonels historically were the uh, sort of the bodyguards of the governor back in the early 1800s. They had that certain sort of way of dressing with the drape coach and the string ties and the Van Dyke beard. And uh, they were, it was sort of a militia in a way uh, there to protect, that, that was their job, you know, back in those days of, you know, bushwhackers and duels and whatnot. And uh, over the years, uh, they kind of formed into a, a society amongst themselves, a charitable organization. And then at one point they allowed women in and, you know, it was no longer any kind of military aspect to it at all. And uh, so it's a titular honor, as they say, it's not non-military. And I want to make that clear because I don't want people thinking that I'm putting badges on myself when I have not been <laughs> in the armed services. But you know, my uh, my granddaddy was a lieutenant colonel in the, in the army, but this is way different, and it's more morphed into sort of a charitable organization, uh, and uh, and and you don't even have to be from Kentucky; they, they, they've laxed it like uh, to the point to where even the like the Dalai Lama and. Uh, you know, people like uh, I think the singer from um, Judas Priest is a colonel. Like they they give uh-huh. it out. They're, they're people that are involved in charities, they're charitable. They've done something of note that reflects back positively on Kentucky. Will get you qualified for a nomination. And I've nominated many people and have made many a colonel. Actually, the governor is the one that has to sign off on it. But uh, and for years, the, uh, the the stereotype was that you had to send the governor a ham. Uh, to become a <laughs> colonel, that must have been from a bygone era. But that, yeah, it's just an honorary title, and I, 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 and a lot of colonels, you know, that don't play it up as much as I do. But I just happen to be a history buff and find it fascinating and cool. And I always like the kind of secret society stuff, anyway. So, like Colonel Sanders of Kentucky Fried Chicken right. fame, he's like the quintessential colonel. He, yeah, he's the Kentucky one. We, in fact, I heard somewhere that, that around the world, people know that iconic image of him that that trademark more they they can say ah colonel sanders and they recognize him more than mickey mouse so like he's a universal like the most known cartoon image is is colonel sanders for some reason so he's very famous and uh but he never saw that coming it was but yeah but evidently there's other southern states that have colonels or something similar 
I think Colonel Tom Parker, who was Elvis's manager, uh, was a Louisiana colonel or something. Or I, I might be wrong on that. But yeah, it, it's not just Kentucky, evidently. Well, sounds like you're in good company. Dalai Lama, Judas Priest, uh, <laughs> Colonel Sanders. You right. can't name a better bunch than that. And Colonel JD. So uh, you've been in the music business for a while, performing, touring, recording. I'm guessing your title of Colonel came about because of your amazing contributions to the music that you know is so... Yeah. So much a part of your state. So tell us what's changed in the music industry since you first got your start. I'm sure there's a ton we can unwrap here, but what are some things that come to mind? Well, I guess the most obvious one is that we're not in the record sales anymore. Uh, Now everything is digital and they don't know how to really navigate, how to monetize what we do. Basically, I, you know, the best way to make money at it, I guess, is to get your song in a movie or uh, some sort of licensing. But even that, there's such competition now for everyone trying to do that, that, you know, the, the what you're paid if you do land a, a placement is uh, not what it used to be. Um, and, it, you know, it's kind of who you know and networking and all that, um, who you party with. That's That hasn't changed. And uh, there's an aspect of payola that I did not know that just changes forms and different ways of going about it. That I didn't know was is the age old thing just in life. Uh, the Napster thing that brought about the MP3 uh, revolution uh, has basically made my uh, line of work uh, more about beer and T-shirt sales. So, like when we go play a gig, you know, we get paid, of course, uh, like a flat rate or some sort of a door deal. But where we make our profit is. Uh, it's selling t-shirts, you know, or merch. And it's just like a traveling uh, yard sale more than anything now, it, you know, but, but it, it, you know, there's nothing, uh, there, you know, uh, nothing shameful about being a traveling salesman either. So like, you just have to look at it differently. It's a, it's a traveling flea market with a show and uh, there's, they sell beer there. <laughs> well, I've been to your shows. It's a good time. Yeah. Yeah. No complaints. Yeah. I mean, I mean, from, from the audience perspective, right. but, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't care. I, 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 I'm a creative person and however the mo- model is, I'm still going to do what I do. And, uh, you know, it's a, you know, basically what in the, in the, in the issue really, if you think about it, I mean, it's, I'm not going to be selling a million records doing what I do anyway, you know, even if it was the old model, it's not like people need to hear songs about the Mothman. Like, I don't write. <laughs> yes, they do, JD. That's the problem with our society. Yeah. That's what we're missing. Well, I agree, but uh, but I, I'm also realistic. You know, I in fact, when I moved to Nashville, it never, for some reason, it never even dawned on me to at least try to write a hit. I, I've been too. I've come out of art school, and so much of a individualism and 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 vision, being a visionary and unique, was drilled into my head. Uh, you know, to be uh, to to capture the you know the the images of dreams and things that you know, I just sort of assumed that all the arts uh, supported that. And I go to Nashville trying to make a living at music. And then writing songs about, you know, dream imagery and stuff like that and folklore and so stuff that interests me as an individual, as a weirdo that was supported in the, in the college is now like people are like wondering what the hell are you talking about? Why aren't you singing about <laughs> girls and love and cars and booty? And, you know, like it, they not, no one ever posed that question to me. So I never really asked myself like, yeah, what am I doing here? 
it just never dawned on me that I should be trying to like broaden out my appeal. I was like, I guess I assumed that there was no visual appeal to me anyway. I wasn't going to make a sonic appeal. I'm really just kind of trying to make art that uh, interests me. And hopefully there's a niche out there that finds it interesting too. They're like, be creative, but not that creative. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and be creative within these, these well, boundaries. Well, what was weird about it is there are these songwriting circles, these sort of groups, and I just never could wrap my head around how a song or any work of art comes out of a committee. It either comes from the heart or it doesn't. You know, you either dream, dreamt it up and perfected it, and like you know, you want to be proud of the thing that you made, not you contributed to in this kind of committee situation. That's what Nashville's all about: committees and computer programs, actually. You know, there's these boxes they have to check, these algorithms and things that they run their songs through that ends up making them all sound the same because it sells, you know, it's a I factory. I noticed that. Yeah. Actually, right now on the pump, pop country stations, I've noticed there are three songs about having to sell your truck because your ex-girlfriend or ex-wife or whatever, you have too many memories in that truck with her. They're all on the radio simultaneously, and they were all must have been written in that same circle that you're talking well, about. Well, it's probably rival circles doing the same market research. I know that there were, literally was a rule for... I mean, this was about 10 years ago or something, maybe longer, that you had to mention the word coffee within the first minute of a country pop country song. There was a trend. It's like an algorithm uh, says that you must do say coffee. It's like, and it was like, this is what is, it's almost like they're tracking the zeitgeist of a, of a country music listener. And uh, this is the, these are the results for some reason. So it's been really weird and random things like what you're talking about or just, what has to be done in their minds. And to me, that's not coming from the heart. That's coming from a, I don't know, a vast corporate database. Well, speaking of vast corporate databases, that is the perfect segue for my next question. I wanted to ask you about social media. I have a friend who, his name is Adam. He uh, he has an expression he uses called like fracking. So we're all familiar with fracking, how we drill into the earth and frack to extract all the good stuff, natural gas, oil, all those valuable fuels. So Adam uses like fracking to refer to people who negatively impact an event by attending solely for the purpose of extracting pictures and likes for social media. That's the Adam Wright definition. I think it's genius. I wish I could take credit for it, but (laughs) I'm sure you know all about that, JD. I'm guessing for you, social media is kind of like a double-edged sword. You need it to promote your music, just like we all need it to promote business and all that stuff. But I'm wondering how it's affected your experience as a performer. Do you notice people just taking selfies, taking pictures of you, posting them, and then walking away? Or Yeah. Uh, that, yeah. That, I was listening to like Elon Musk talking about artificial intelligence and how they're going to like put like a computer cap to interface with your brain one day. And he says that we're already kind of doing that anyway with our phones. And the way that it's affecting our behavior is uh, it, it's, al- it's already evident that uh, that vast corporate database and the peer pre- the way that it interfaces, it, it alters our personality and our sort of natural ways of uh, engaging with the world uh, organically, which is a thing of the past. We're already there, really. I've seen, and I, like you said, I've seen it over the years slowly going in that direction as we went from flip phones to smartphones. And and then smartphones and social media, you know, it, MySpace was for musicians for us to sort of uh, 
get our act together and put our, you know, like I have a little website and let people see us and hear us. And then whenever they, uh, Facebook came along, it was, everyone's a celebrity. Everyone's hilarious. Everyone's beautiful, you know, and, uh, everyone is an entertainer. And it, it, and it, by doing that, it's like fusing that skull cap of, 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 of a cathode ray or whatever the little things are that you connect with, you know, uh, into your brain and tricking you into thinking you're something you're not. And then along with just the natural progress of technology since the dawn of time, really just, it just changes us as we go. And so we're just, it's a manifestation of, uh, of technology and interfacing with the zeitgeist or with collective thought. It can do so, it can, it's, it, 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 it's so successful in the way that it just coats planet earth now and in a pathological way that no one is immune to it. And we're all trying to stay, uh, connected and figure out what's going on. And then, it, but it sort of kind of breaks down into these like broad, lowest com- common denominator trends. You know, it's like four, three or four styles of music now, you know, and all of them are really, uh, in, uh, you know, people coming out taking selfies at shows rather than enjoying music for music's sake. You know, it, it's, it's, they're doing this. I, I coined the term identity anthem. Like you'll notice that, whether it be pop, bubblegum, hip hop, or pop country, bro country, whatever, whatever the big mass trendy genre is that, you know, the three or four styles of music you hear on the radio anymore, um, they're all asserting a lifestyle and uh, basically describing the, the signals, the things you're supposed to be signaling to put yourself into a category for your identity to be broadcast in mass. So that's why you become part of the video when you put that pucker face thing up at the hip hop show, the white girl, like, see, I'm not racist, you know, or I'm, I'm, I'm at the cool event or the redneck. That's like, see what, this is what I'm into. I'm not gay. You know, there's all these things (laughs) that assert some sort of identity because organic identity was something you used to be born with. You never thought about, you were never self-conscious about necessarily because you stayed where you were born but now that everything is global you know it's it's uh you got to pick something so you have an identity and it, and it's usually just three or four choices that have to be asserted all the time if, to be accepted and it's that's just depressing seeing that happen slowly in crowds before my eyes over time we had my Dwayne Dennison was a guitar player who used to be into the Jesus lizard it was like part of a grunge movement uh, and his heyday. And then he joined our band later after that was over. And it was like his first time out in front of kids again, like kids, meaning college kids or whatever. And they were all standing there with their hands in their pockets, you know, like wondering if it was okay to tap their toe, kind of checking over their shoulder. Is this cool? Is it, I don't know if it's cool. Then why'd you even come? <laughs> He's like, what the <laughs> hell is wrong with kids now? He, Cause he was coming back into it with fresh eyes and he was shocked at just how much had changed in like 10 years. And I said, yeah, I, I, I know <laughs> I was, I've, I've been watching it happen, you know, nightly, you know, because we go from town to town and uh, every time we go back into a town, it's like fresh eyes on that town again. And what's, and, and their culture and youth culture uh, going from rock and roll craziness to 
very self-conscious, hands in the pocket, you know, um, anxiety, it seems. What about the way wokeness and cancel culture, I know this all ties in together, but it's kind of like the chicken or the egg, you know, people, I feel like artists must be afraid of being zany and unique and out there and fun and crazy like you. Um, I don't know if it's because they think that their audience, as you say, there's only four basic big umbrella options for you to succeed as a musician. And so they're afraid to experiment with their audience, like, oh, I might fail. Or is it that the audience is afraid to, yeah, like you said, you know, tap your toes, is this cool? Like, I don't know which one's affecting which, but I'm sure that that the homogenized woke culture is doing no favors to the art world right. and music. Well, yeah, I mean, stuff. yeah, it's a homogenization for sure. It's, it's a self-consciousness. So you got to fit in because like, you, you know, um, woke is a, to, I think is, I'm not really worried about because we're such, still such a, it's almost a blessing that we never got big uh, because we kind of can, we can serve our niche audience and, there's not going to be any crossover, any danger of anyone mainstream or, you know, to they already get what we do. And it's it's meant to be fun and, and, and kind of frantic and wild and daring a little, you know, artists. There are like uh, pockets, I think, still in the underground where you can get away with being uh, yourself, genuine. Uh, but it's when you want wish to. Break, make money, get rich and famous and get up into the big leagues, which I don't never cared to do. That's when you have to worry about cancellation. You, they're not, no one's going to worry about canceling someone you never heard of because it's a not, it's a virtue signal and people need to know the reference. If you know, if they're going to win any cred points for canceling you, they have to know who you they have to recognize the celebrity that you're canceling. And if you're obscure enough, it doesn't get you the cred points you need. And I, I just see that uh, woke in general is, or political correctness, the way that it's morphed over time is is sort of uh, a religiosity, a dogmatic sort of um, religion that's secular, though, in the wake of uh, technology sort of explaining away the old superstitions and things, um, and just the the fact that you don't have to worry about you know, uh, d- dying young as much and, or dying during childbirth and, and, and you know, conquering hordes and, and nature and wilderness as much. Uh, when you take those pressures away, how quickly we uh, eschew religion and tradition, those things fall away really quick. It's, it really outs us as being fair weather friends to Christ. And, uh, you know, thanks for the ride, Jesus. Thanks for, uh, you know, uh, thanks for the humanities, uh, Plato, Socrates, you know, uh, see you later. And then, but once we get off on our own, we don't know what to do when we've, we've divorced away those, uh, those principles and, you know, those building blocks. Someone said like, uh, modern Western society is such an achievement. It's like a house of cards though, that was built up very carefully over you know, centuries. And then all it took was one swipe to knock it down. And then now everyone's like, well, now what do we do? So they were building back this house of cards out of what uh, post scientific, you know, uh, moon landing, you know, information age version of it's like, so it's like a uh, replica, but it, it, it comes with all the bad things religion had, which is a uh, judgmentalism and uh, sanctimony and 
food laws and pilgrimages pilgrimages you must take and a new speak a way of speaking amongst yourselves to signal you know all the that's it ended up being it wasn't religion's fault in the first place that it got all this bad press for being so sanctimonious and judgy and having all these weird things that don't make sense and then uh and then when they make a secular version of it those things still come through and it turns out that's that's a human thing not a relig- not a necessarily a thing about faith yeah, if they come through without the whole salvation part, it's uh, it's pretty scary. I mean, there's a reason that our depression rates are so high and our anxiety levels are at an all time high. You know, with you take oh, you take God out of the picture, and it's pretty hopeless. And I'd be depressed too. But yeah, luckily for us, JD, we have faith. So before mm-hmm. we started recording this podcast, you and I were talking a little bit about the influences of your music and just the amazing depth of. Uh, references to religion, to history, as you said, folklore, those sorts of things. So can you talk about how you developed your style and um, and what comes across in your music for those unfortunate souls who have never listened to you? And I'm sure that'll change as soon as we release this podcast. Well, if you go <laughs> listen to like uh, the, the entire catalog, God, God <laughs> bless you. You're going to you're going to follow along lyrically with a troubled person uh, who was uh, wrestling with uh, uh, doubt and and faith and uh, riffing, sometimes ripping on and sometimes just riffing on religion and religious themes and uh, depending on where I was in my life. So it, it's all honest about where I was, you know. And I I wouldn't necessarily trust someone that never had any doubts or didn't have a curiosity about other things, ways of looking at things. And and, I, and I'm not a purist when it comes to my uh, beliefs, you know, I'm, it's constantly changing or being modified a little here and there. I basically side with positivity and like what, whatever the source of that is. And I call it God. Someone else can call it something else. I have my way of dealing with life that, um, I choose more of a traditional way of going about it because it's that's my culture. I was raised Catholic until I was 13, and my mom took us to the Baptist church down in Louisiana when we moved down there, and she had a crisis of conscience about Mary and some of the teachings and the saints and all that. And she explained it to me, and I was like, it's fine. I don't know yet. I'm too young. Uh, but I got a good dose of both, and uh, I actually enjoyed uh, the sort of— um, the the rhythm and the traditions and the sort of the pacing the the what would you call it sort of the the, the formula in a way of the mass and also of the southern baptist church service it was a, ordered and the music was good and you know if i got something out of either one of them uh usually it was the sermon or the homily but um and the music uh but then uh, when we moved back to Kentucky, they, I started going to this Christian school that was, um, like I told you, it was like sn- a snake handler uh, church, but without the snakes. It was sponsored by a, uh, a Christian school. I think they're Assemblies of God is what it is, the denomination. So non-denominational, but basically Pentecostal without the dress code and snake handlers without the snakes. Speaking in tongues, foot washings standing up in the middle of the service and just going into tongues, uh, prophesying, you know, the day of Pentecost kind of stuff, Pentecostals, charismatic movement, 
and um, and I just was like, what the hell is going on? You know, I was, it was so different from Southern Baptist and Catholic. It was like uh, just, uh, it, it, but it was interesting to me because it was kind of punk rock in a way too. You know, it had a lot of, uh, there was a, like a rock band, uh, that, you know, when literally on stage and, uh, you know, it was wild. And, but at the same time, I just thought that these people might be a little crazy or something, or they don't, and I, you know, I wrestled with that and maybe I rebelled, but I also took elements of uh, charismatic preaching and put it into my show later. I've, uh, some of the elements of uh, the, the Southern Gothic, you know, Christ haunted gospel language of the of, of Middle English from the Bible, you know, um, King James kind of... Um, floral or florid language I would put into lyrics. All of this is to sort of recreate a tent revival feeling in, but in a kind of a punk rock club. And, uh, that's, that's kind of where the Shack Shakers, uh, aesthetic came from, but it was all, all of it was me processing all of the above in a way, because that's a, that's a lot to go through as a kid when you're talking about your soul and like, where's it going and what do you got to do? Pick one. You got to pick one. And they're all saying you're going to hell if you, if you pick wrong. <laughs> so I think that's why I kind of uh, forged an ecumenical uh, sort of blend of all of the above in my way that I look at things now. And I throw in, you know, you know, you know logic and reason, of course, but you know, somewhere in there, I split the difference, and I, I feel like I've, I've tried to be a good person and uh, keep my nose clean as best I can and have fun with it. Another influence, I don't know if it's exactly an influence, but it seems like everything influences you one way or another. <laughs> I was surprised to learn that you are an avid watcher, or you were once an avid watcher of C-SPAN. Can oh, you, yeah. uh, I, didn't, I didn't think that was possible for anyone, but yeah. you must have the patience of Job because <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> tell us about that. Book notes and things like that, you know, depending on the book. I mean, uh, I'll still watch old uh, book notes uh, and you know, correspondence dinners and things like that. There was a lot of good stuff on C-SPAN. I mean, uh, in the 90s, uh, that was kind of like a great heyday. I mean, it's when everyone started watching, you know, it was interesting. It wasn't like you know, like, uh, you know, public access showing like the town council meetings on Thursday nights, you know, it wasn't. That's what I I think of when I think of C-SPAN. I must not have given it enough of a fair shake. Well, uh, (laughs) yeah, it just depends on who's talking. Like Camille Paglia, she was on there. She had a book. I I love watching her. Anyone that was sort of um, had an interesting, I think it was really the, the book show was more what I was into watching and it's still a good show if it's still on it's i would imagine i just haven't had cable in forever so i don't know what's going on i don't really follow the news that much anymore but back then i was raised in a house where we were all news junkies and talked politics and stuff and and uh so yeah and then i just was interested in philosophy i still am history and if it was anything to do with that kind of stuff i was i was stopping and watching for hours (laughs) Well, I know you must be extremely patient and disciplined because you are one of the top harmonica players in the world, on the planet, in the galaxy, I would say. Um, You're also an amazing artist. You, I'm assuming you do all of the the merch designs and stuff. So 
that must be gratifying whenever you, even though if you are traveling flea market, whenever you sell stuff, at least it's stuff that you made. (laughs) Yeah. um, I have a couple of degrees in art. That's what I wanted to be was an artist, a visual artist. Uh, When I went to college, it made me go to college. So that was what my major was, but I was good at it. And, uh, and then this, this sort of monkey wrench and everything was forming a band instead and traveling and touring, getting to go to Europe and all that. It was kind of hard to, say no to still is i'm still stuck i still am like help let me out of this i want to go back to drawing and but i can draw whenever i want i just have to get back in it's like switching gears and one is sort of the antidote to the other uh but no i don't do all the designs because i'm also a fan of other artists and uh, i have my sort of uh pet uh favorites that i will use and so it doesn't all just become my stuff you know uh, like a variety that but it's all sort of in that same kind of genre, sort of um, woodcutish, you know, engravings of, of, of southern atmospheric imagery, you know, like uh, things like that. If it, I, uh, I, I'm just as happy letting someone else draw it if it gets a feeling across that I'm not able to quite channel yet, uh, the, wherever I'm at. You know, if someone else can come along and do it better. And I can get their permission to use it. That's that's what I'll do. But yeah, most of the time it's it's my own art, those sideshow banners and and uh, illustrations, you know, cross hatch illustrations that I I I like a lot of eighteen hundreds newspaper editorial cartoons. You know, where they did the hip, like Thomas Nast with the heavy uh, cross hatching. I like that style, and uh, so that's 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 my bag. Do you collect anything? You kind of strike me as a collector. Yeah. I collect too many things, you know, nothing of value. I have a wooden nickel collection I've been, I've had since I was a kid. Like wooden nickels, uh, uh, old tin uh, Popeye, uh, the Sailor Man, uh, wind-up toys or puppets, or anything Popeye I'll, I'll collect. Of course, I have a million banjos and harmonicas. And I have, like, antique harmonicas, those strange ones with horns coming out of them that, you know, that predate microphones when you had to put horns on things to be heard. Even Granny had one coming out of her head uh, back in the day before electronics. And, uh, yes, yeah, so a lot of cool old uh, instruments and things. So, if I, you know, I'll get off on a like – I'll become obsessed and then immediately bored <laughs> with my collections. You're like a typical millennial. <laughs> yeah, ADHD. Oh, I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer, as it turns out. Well, J.D., this has been a pleasure, and I'm sure we could choose a million more topics to speak about in the future, and I hope that you will join us again. But um, that's all the time we have for today. So what is the best way for people to learn more about you, listen to your music, find out where you're playing, buy your books? J.D. is also a published author. And how do they? how should people connect with the great Colonel? I guess just Google me and lots of things come up and whichever direction you go, I guess all the music's on iTunes and, you know, the usual, you know, Amazon and whatnot. I I don't even know the names, but uh, they'll find me. Uh, The book uh, that I'm most proud of is The Vine That Ate the South. It's the novel I wrote about Southern folklore. It's published by $2 Radio. And if you go to the website, Two dollar radio instead of Amazon. I think I get a better deal on royalties, you know. <laughs> so, um, and uh, they're a great little label or not label uh, publishing company that uh, takes chances on unheard of, unknown authors and, and gives them a chance to get it, get their feet wet and get in the game. So, like uh, that's a great. If people look up two dollar radio, that would be a good thing. 
And if you had, let's say, three songs that you think really illustrate your talent, your band's sound, what would they be? If you say, this is what we're all about. Okay. Well, you could look up Swamp Blood, uh, one word, Swamp Blood, and that was in the True Blood soundtrack, uh, first season of that show. Uh, Let's say something called Pine Tree Boogie. Uh, That was on um, Cockadoodle Don't. There was a Bloodshot Records release. And let's see. I got to do some old-timey song, too. Like, I'm into banjo music, uh, old-time banjo music. So look up uh, Cattle in the Cane. That's C-A-N-E, Cattle in the Cane. And that's a record I did with an an old uh, fiddle player who's since passed away. But I, I think it's perhaps the most important thing I've ever recorded was that record also called Cattle in the Cane. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out more at spectatorworld.com. And if you'd like to listen to us, please check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are available.